This is our Everest. Greetings, Culture Vultures, and welcome to This is Our Christmas Everest, the podcast where we find out what computers are going to be like in 1986. Yep. (laughs) It's BBC Micro Live, Christmas 1985. Tell me about BBC Micro Live. Well, the BBC had a kind of broad uh, project on computers which stretched back to the late 1970s it was very much considered part of their remit to be at the centre of um, the forthcoming technological revolution yes they teamed up with uh, Acorn computers to produce the BBC B micro in 1981 Um, if you go on the internet and look about look about old video games you see a hell of a lot of reference to the great video game crash of 1983 and (laughs) that was entirely an american event uh, because the market here was so completely different in this country yeah that you know there were a lot of atari vcs's sold but the home micro market was what really came to dominate gaming and by 1985 you had sort of five or six commonly used systems and a whole load of others which had already sunk without any trades and primarily what they were used for was games but the BBC at the end of 1985 is still gamely plugging along (laughs) with this idea that people will be running their household economies on it and producing rudimentary spreadsheets. Well, of course, the thing is, though, that ultimately that is what happened, but in a way that is unimaginable to somebody in 1985. Well, the interesting thing about all of this is that actually the fundamentals of what we use now haven't radically altered from where they were at the end of 1985. Now, you see this most notably in an interview with the Daily Mail journalist, Anne Leslie, uh, in which (laughs) she is extolling the virtues of having a word processor at home. And, um, in fact, it's, it's an Amstrad 8256, I think, that she's got. And that makes another appearance a little bit later on. Yeah. Um, One thing about Anne Leslie that I I noted immediately is that if you didn't know what newspaper she wrote for, you would guess Daily Mail. Immediately. (laughs) Immediately. Immediately. And unequivocally, the most Daily Mail correspondent I've ever seen. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And... um... But, you know, she's she's very happy with her word processor. Um, she yeah. gets something wrong because she spells Khrushchev wrong. Yeah, she tries to do a demonstration of the find and replace yeah. feature and it, you know, she fucks up. 
Yeah. But I mean, what Terrible. is yeah? But I mean, what is really striking is that the word processor software that they're using is so similar to what we still use now. Yeah. Now, obviously, it's infinitely more advanced now. You yeah. Know? I, mean, yeah. I don't. I don't need to. You know, labour that particularly no. hard. But in 1985, search, find and replace, copy yeah. and paste. Yeah. All of those things are already there. Well, of course, and you're talking about the previous industry leader being the electric typewriter. Yeah. No human being on earth could honestly tell me that if you had a functioning word processor, it is better than having an electric typewriter. Well, I mean, you know. For a hundred million reasons. I was educated on Hang the on. very... <laughs> Shut up. Well, I was I was I was educated at the very cusp of this transformation. Um I had a typewriter oh, nice. when I was at school. Was it brother? Uh no, it was bloody ancient is what it was. It was like it was about you know, a <laughs> foot and a half t- tall yeah. and, and square and you know, I had those little strips, tipex strips. That you put inside it and press the button that you got wrong, and it would dab some tipex exactly over the button and get rid of it. They were very good. They were a revelation. And um, so I had that when I was at school. When I was at college, um, I was the editor of the student union magazine for two years. Yeah. Uh, and Fruity moments. Uh, it was that was one of the comic strips in it. The, <laughs> The actual the actual publication itself was called A Briefcase Full of Fruit. Oh, good grief. Yeah. So and um and that was produced on an Amstrad eight two five six. Actually. This was what, nineteen ninety wow. ninety one or Pretty so. exciting stuff. So I was using that exact system that they were showing and it was beautifully easy to use. Um and by the time I was at university I had an electric typewriter. But I didn't have a word processor, so I'd kind of taken a step back, you know. The thing is, at the time, I was doing my gaming on a, yeah. on, a, uh, on a console. I was doing my gaming yeah. on a Mega Drive. So, you know, I, I, my mates had Atari STs and Commodore Amigas, and I eventually got one in about 1994 or 95, you know, just as they were actually starting to be superseded by PCs. And that got me back into it to, to the extent to which I could get a PC, you know, a couple of years later. So at this point, this is the very beginning of that analog to digital transfer. Yeah. And at the time, they haven't quite got the vocabulary for what they're experiencing. It is a weird program. Fascinating. Social has, document. Yeah, it has creepy opening titles. Uh, it has three co-hosts who aren't named. And I went back and I checked and I double-checked and triple-checked. Right the way through it, their names aren't given at the beginning. Their names aren't listed to the end, at the end. <laughs> and, their, and their names aren't put up on the screen the first time they appear on screen now I knew Fred Harris. Fred Harris, because anybody of my age remembers Fred Harris from Play School. Yes, I, I'm or Play Away or whichever. I'm, one it was. Uh, he did another one as well where he tootled around on a little train. I can't remember what there was. A, like, a, I'm in a very strange place culturally because I came along 
in the generation that followed yours. Yeah. Whereby I never had a typewriter at school. Yeah. And also, I don't remember Fred Harris at all. Do you not? Oh, right. Yeah, no. So I'm in this weird hinterland. He did either Play School or Play Away, and he did another programme where, like I say, he chugged around on a little kind of, like, train thing, and there was a big, this big sort of, like, computer on a, you know, on a, just standing upright. And I I don't remember really any details about that at all. He sounds like he's had a life. Yeah. He was a familiar face. The, the, the woman, the blonde, there was a blonde woman, uh, and I thought at first it might be Leslie Judd, but I don't think it was Leslie Judd. It was Leslie Judd. Was it Leslie Judd? Yes, oh, right, yes. okay. I wasn't certain. Um, I, the first time I looked, I was like, is that Leslie Judd? And then the second time I looked, I was like, actually, I don't think it is. But there we go, right first time. And then there's the other bloke who I only know as the bloke off Microlife, because I have seen <laughs> other episodes of Microlife wow. before. Wow, and wow, he's wow. been the host of those, but at no point have I absorbed his full name. His so, name is Ian McNaught Davis. Ian McNaught Davis. Right, I will try and remember that. It will help because he's got the same first name as you. Well, okay, yeah, but he's got a different surname. Yeah, well, that'll be the thing to focus on remembering okay. then, won't it? Well, I'm going to find him on Twitter, <laughs> and I'm going to eat. Oh, no, can you can you uh, follow me? I've got DM to send you. I wonder and if they're all on Twitter. I mean, if Leslie Judd isn't on Twitter, do we call her a traitor to the cause for presenting BBC Micro Live and affecting interest? No, 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 no. I mean, she was an all-rounder, Leslie Judd. Just leave that one hanging yeah. there. Well, OK. Blue she, Peter. Blue Peter. Yeah. Do you know what film she's in? No. She's in a film. Oh. It's a film that you've seen. Is it? Yeah. One of my favourites. Oh, God. You go on, then. She's in Friends. Oh, don't give me. D- <laughs> that's, she is. That's put the wi- that put the willies in me. Yeah. Just from the name. Yeah. God Almighty. The bit where um, Jimmy's family go round to Ruth's house. Jesus Christ. To meet the families. Yeah. Before the bomb goes off, and they're in the living room, <laughs> oh. and her old man, fucking hell, uh, is sitting on the sitting in a chair reading a newspaper. <laughs> And the TV's on in the background, yeah? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I'm with you. Let's get out. I'm good at this. Take me there. And, uh... Well, it's not so much that. I mean, I have seen this. Yeah. She's the newsreader. Oh, is she? Yeah. Played by Leslie Judd. Yeah. So, you know... You don't really think... I mean, the interesting thing about you and and the film Threads, right? Yeah. Is that you know all about the previous and later careers of all the people who are in it. Whereas I just assume they're all dead. I've seen it and it (laughs) fucked me up. I mean, I only really know that about a couple of them. Okay. Um, Your Reese Dinsdale thing has never ceased to to surprise and delight. I can't even remember what that was. You got followed by Reese Dinsdale on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if he still does. I don't know. There's every chance he doesn't because I am quite boring. I quote tweeted a picture of his with a pithy Fred's reference. Oh, nice! You see, okay. and I, I, it's it's um, it's a great film. You know, yeah, I it's know. Brilliantly I, I, made. It's horrifying. Yeah, yeah it's and let, that's made. why that's why we need to not talk because I don't want to think about it too yeah, much. That's the thing, isn't it? It's awful. Yeah, it's the most traumatic film, which is not to say it's not brilliant. Yeah. So. 
you know, there think you go. on that. Leslie Judd. Leslie Judd. Um, <laughs> and Threads. And Threads, <laughs> yeah. Back in October, the Listener magazine launched two competitions to test your skills as code crackers with two pieces of encrypted data. The challenges were set by John Clifford of Datasoft and Dick Gilbert from The Listener. Ian McNaught Davis was presenting a competition piece, I think. Yes. With some magazines. And interestingly, they were all code-breaking things. Code-crackers, yeah. So this is like the grounding for the, the cyber-criminals who are then later recruited to make the next generation of... Yeah, this is this is our 4 And so on, and so on. <laughs> this is our 4chan started, basically. It's... It's it's a weird competition because they have to have two competitions, and one of them is too easy, yeah. and then the other one, the second one, is too difficult. Yeah. So you kind of get the feeling that this this shit is still very much in its infancy in a digital era, and you've got people who maybe don't quite fully understand what they're doing running it. Otherwise, they'd surely they'd hit the right difficulty level rather yeah. than going from too easy to too yeah. difficult. There were a hundred correct answers for the first one and then they had to have a prize task essentially amongst the hundred people and it's the person who won did some sort of Shakespearean thing which really got up my nose. And the answer which we judged to be the winner came from Mr C Banfield of London East 7 who sent this uh, telegram to William Shakespeare. Absent Bill, could discs encompass Falstaff's girth, Hamlet's indecision, jealous King Lear? Machines now offering playwrights quills, reasonable scribes, though unimpressive verse writers, Yorick. Brilliant. Maybe Shakespeare would actually use a word processor. But then the second one, the Davisoft number code, they said on the programme that no one had got it right and that they were confident that no one would. Yeah. And I believe, to this day, no one ever has. Well, do you know what, right? What's if the a, fucking point in that? Then? If there's a code so uncrackable... <laughs> what's no, the point in telling anyone? Yeah, what's the point? <laughs> if What's the point in even writing it down, really? Yeah, we've done this. Because so, it could be anything. You know, it could literally... Well, well done, have a biscuit. <laughs> then, the best bit, because we're, 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 uh, we're back to threads... Leslie Judd reads the news. Yeah, well, you know, reprising um, her role. A fascinating, fascinating news item, I thought, was that they had announced that Acorn was to launch a new micro in January 1986. Yeah. Uh, the Acorn spokesman didn't want to comment Yeah. to the BBC, which is in collaboration to make this machine. So the BBC yeah. is essentially reporting on a story about a BBC product, a publicly funded product. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the BBC declined to comment to the BBC's own programme <laughs> that was essentially announcing it. Yeah, oh, yeah. What, no, I it, mean, what, it was, um, what kind of bullshit is that? Is I mean, I assume. I haven't really done any research on it apart from the... the Wikipedia-ing I was doing while you were on your little rant there. <laughs> um, I presume that that computer was the Acorn Archimedes, which was oh, the kind yeah. of successor to the BBC, which came out in... But that didn't come out until June 1987. Strikes, innit? But, I mean, there were always delays to these things. But, I mean, they were the ones that we had in school. 
Yeah. When I was when and I me. Was, yeah. When I was later on at school, they they had a they had the acorn archimedes. They were really shagged out by the time we got on though, because you know, essentially eight years of you and people like you have been using yeah. them before us, and they were just despicable things. yeah I mean all we did with them was um, draw cops yeah draw their was their equivalent of um, MS Paint you know of course yeah yeah they had that on there so you could do hilarious drawings and that, that was it that was all we used them for other news story and I think this is this is quite an interesting one sluggish computer sales there's a shortage of Amstrad 3 inch discs because only Maxell and Panasonic make them and in the USA, computer companies are all slashing their prices to move stock. Yeah. And some of them are saying that in Silicon Valley, they're just glad to have survived 1985. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is that... The, Which brings us back to threats. Yeah. Well, I mean, the video games crash was a thing in America, and it had a big knock-on effect on... Yeah. ...computer gaming as well, because firstly, computer gaming wasn't proportionally as popular and also because it dented confidence in the in the in the wider market so i'm not particularly surprised by the by that the thing that annoyed me about that in fact there were two things that annoyed me about it and one thing i found very interesting firstly they got this woman on the phone on a phone interview or like a phone report. And the quality of the call is absolutely terrible. I mean, you almost can't make out what she's saying. <laughs> and secondly, yeah, all right, okay, she's only got like, you know, 30 seconds or a minute or whatever, and she's got to pack it all in. But after all this, well, American uh, retailers are having to slash costs. They don't give a single actual example. It's just, it's Not one. It's just like, yep, retailers have said they're going to be gay. She just fucking said that. Why are you saying it in a different voice? Meanwhile, the holiday tradition of half a million dollar staff parties is nowhere to be seen this year in Silicon Valley. Most computer company employees will get low-cost snacks, even potluck vittles for the first time in a long time. But few are complaining. Their Christmas cheer is that they survived 1985 alive. Reporting from Silicon Valley for Microlive, I'm Wendy Woods. The other thing I would say there about that interview, by the way, oh yeah, Wendy Woods, Wendy Woods, um, is that I, I don't know why, but I, I'd never really thought about it before, I suppose. But I was surprised to hear the phrase Silicon Valley being used. In 1985. But, yeah, it was a bit know. weird. Yeah, that was that. Does, I, for some reason, I think I'd assumed that it was a 90s thing with kind of Microsoft and Apple and what have you. Yeah. So. And now, if you've often wondered what Santa looks like in his shirt sleeves, here he is, John Cole, <laughs> together with a huge selection of prezzies. So these presents for computer lovers. You yes. love a bit of computers. Any of these grab you? We had a uh, text-to-speech writing program. There's that tongue twister that we used earlier in the season. <laughs> Which is completely unintelligible. You cannot make out what it's saying in the slightest. <laughs> you know, it's saying... <laughs> it was fantastic. I was watching it. And my wife walked in, yeah. took one look at the screen and went, what the hell is this? What are you doing? And she had a fair point because I was watching 
a machine be abs just demonstrably bad and everyone on the screen was telling me that actually it was a fantastic piece of kit yeah and the future and the well, it was right. it was weird okay it was worse than the fucking robot it at was, the beginning no, of this it, no it was bad fuck you and the horse you rode in on and obviously that is a limitation of the hardware of the times uh zx spectrum you had 48 kilobytes of RAM to deal with, you know. Yeah. It's it's not a lot. It's a few hundred lines of code. And the Spectrum only made eight sounds. So you had to blend them together really finely. And they would take up too much memory and they would not be it would not be worthwhile doing because the quality was just not good enough. I remember the first game that came out for the Spectrum that really had speech in it. And it was a big gimmick. The game was called Muggsy. Oh, I remember Muggsy. um, It was a kind of adventure game in in a 1930s uh, gangland style. It wasn't an arcade game in any way. It was all still pictures. But graphically, it was actually quite good. And that had about two or three, maybe three or four pre-recorded speech things like this one almost unintelligible but that was <laughs> that was impressive for the time and the ability to convert it yeah very impressive for the time considering like i say considering what was out there in terms of but hardware. this was neither of those things it was not they then i mean he moved on to a bunch of things that weren't even computers yeah. Um, just basically toys. Toys, yeah. They're Toy. very much robot cat, robot dog, yeah. robot mouse. Yeah, that that ain't a fucking robot mate. I tell you what I tell you what I think is the one that would have piqued your interest was the Spectrum unit. Yeah. For I the just... ZX eighty one. Spectrum presumably being a drum machine programme or it would be, yeah. I mean it would be um I can imagine what it would look like, what its <laughs> interface would look like. I've got a feeling that I might even have seen it before as well. You must have it somewhere. Yeah. I mean you No got... no no, I wouldn't have had one at the time because I mean all right. My opinion on electronic drums has changed very, very much over the last thirty five years. As one might expect. Um in 1985, I was just starting to learn to play the drums, and I was very much against them because the assumption was these robots are going to come along and take our drums. Ah, now what? Yet again, you see, the um, this is another area of the generation gap, is that you were very much still of the robots are going to rise up and. Well, yeah, yes and no. But my generation yeah. thought robots were like, you know, short circuit, Johnny Five. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it, it's not, It's I, I never really bought into that, but this was a practical kind of concern, you know. If 20% of bands decided that they could get a buy with a drum machine and no drummer, then yeah. that's 20% less gigs. For, for for drummers and it and it wasn't a matter of being uh, okay. for me at least it wasn't a matter of like you know anything ideological it's a practical concern it's a union thing especially when you know i was like 13 at the time so i don't know shit about anything <laughs> and you're thinking well why wouldn't it be like that oh, and dear. there are good arguments for not having a drummer there are good arguments for having a, a drum machine there are plenty of bands it that don't use a live drummer at all now. Of course, the the 
the thing about that is that it doesn't matter because anybody who wants to play the drums can still play the drums. And because drummers are in relatively high demand in comparison to, say, guitarists or singers, we are still in high demand. Yeah. So, you know, it hasn't turned out to be the apocalypse that 13-year-old me might have thought it yeah, would yeah. be. But I would have been against that at the time, but very much in favour of it now. Well, there you go. You know. Isn't it strange the way the world changes? Well, it's the thing is that I've got an electronic drum kit now. You do? Um, I have a drum kit which has not, which has pads and uh, plastic cymbals, and it sounds decent. I'm it's sure. made from the same material as my sex doll. Yeah, it is. It is. It came from the same factory. <laughs> from the you same wanna batch. Hear, you want to hear some of the preset <laughs> kits it's got on it. <laughs> Once you start getting up the high numbers, it all changes. Um, next, a report on the Olivetti computer system that they were breaking out in Formula One motor racing. Okay. Um, now, I see in your notes, oh God, cars. Well, right, okay. I listened to this bit and I wasn't interested in it in the slightest. And I know that you were because... You love cars. I love a bit of cars. You'd marry a car if you could. And oh. if you weren't already married. Yeah. That, His I'm, wife I'm, is not a car. I'm two in the hole. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, but they didn't really explain in any enormous detail what this computer did. Yeah. I was kind of paying attention to the extent to which I realised that it didn't matter if I was paying attention or not. It was mostly... I think this was, car's got a computer. In I it. think it was weird because the segment started with a little bit of an advert, I think, for yeah. Olivetti. And then it turned into a feature just about how Olivetti computers were the new timing suppliers yeah. for Formula One. Because um, there have been some high profile cock ups. But some of the old timers don't find the new system completely foolproof. I've got this super sophisticated computerized monitor readout thing which gives me all the positions of the drivers and the gaps between the drivers. Now there's just one problem of that from my point of view and that it is inevitably one lap adrift because it, it can't complete its information, assimilate everything and play it back to me until all 26 cars or however many are running at the time have crossed the line. It's still at a reasonably rudimentary stage, Murray Walker complains about how, because it only up, it only updates once per lap, mm. and that is to say once every car that is lapping has completed their lap. Yeah. He missed out on some vital calls when there were last lap passes. And, and I think on a professional level that irked him, that he had to leave people with incorrect information about the race results. Yeah, well, that's like VAR in football now. It's just a sophisticated version of the same argument, isn't it? It's like, yeah, what's the point in bringing in this technology if this technology makes it appreciably worse to watch? Yeah. You know, that's, it's a valid argument. Like I say, I just didn't really see the point in this, uh, this, this little clip, apart from in the sense of, all right, so how much of Olivetti slipped you then? Well, I mean, obviously, Olivetti 
were the sponsor of the the Brabham team as well. Yeah. So it begins with I think a some sort of promotional video for them and ends with a promotional video for Olivetti made yeah. by the BBC. Yeah. And published to millions of people. But with editorial balance they have got the world's most treasured man, Murray Walker, saying, "Hey, remember, they're not necessarily all good yeah. things. This might be shit. This might be shit." And then it, it you know, it, but yeah. These these are these are uh, systems that again they're very similar in terms of the words like the word processor they're very similar yeah. to the ones that they have now. I mean, obviously the ones that they have now are much more refined, and I'm sure that they update every presumably sector of a lap at least. I don't want to get into that because I know that you don't like cars. You think cars are stupid, and that if I married a car, then it would be ugly. <laughs> um, the final piece is an interview with a foppish man with Lennon glasses and a bow tie, Michael Bywater, the deputy deputy editor of Punch. Yeah, well, and he's, he's like in their computer editor. He's into extol the virtues of role playing games. Yeah, well, it's kind of like a it's it's almost a review section. Where you've got two people reviewing these video games, and neither of them seem to like video games very much. Well, I absolutely at no point did I believe that the person interviewing him had ever played a video game. No, oh yeah, no, I've seen Ian, uh, whatever his name is. Ian, we we've already failed in this. Hang on, I've got it written yeah. down here. Uh, Ian McNaught Davis. Right, Ian McNaught Davis. Uh, I've seen him talking in an actively hostile way about video games on Micro Live before, <laughs> um, and I have no doubt that his opinion has not changed a jot. Um, the guy from Punch, I think he likes the role-playing games, and but doesn't really have much time for anything else. And I don't think he knows anything about it. So you've got two people who neither know nor care about this subject discussing this subject. Well, you, I mean, you can see them. They're both eye in the bar at this point, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. They're just, you know, I'll try out some platitudinous bullshit. Yeah. I mean, he actually, I mean, it's interesting that he does, in fact, possibly accidentally make some interesting points because I think some of the descriptions of the ideal game that he could make for himself uh, the real life simulator well, he's, just he's waiting... described GTA hasn't well he's he? just waiting for VR isn't yeah, yeah. That's, I mean he was actually describing VR Yeah. so you know he's going to have to wait what 25 odd years yeah do well, you reckon got... he want... still wears a bow tie yeah, I don't know I wonder if he was first in line for an Oculus Rift I was in line for one of those until I found out what it was. Yeah. I, I thought it was something dirty. <laughs> <laughs> and once I found out that actually it was just a pioneering home VR system, I was like, well, what do I want one of them for? Can I do anything dirty with it? <laughs> can I fuck it? <laughs> it's back to Ian's drum kit for me. <laughs> I did wonder. The one thing that I do did note from the episode you do at least get a sense of what a cultural phenomenon Elite was at the time. Yeah, Elite makes a number of appearances. It's... Elite is spoken about as being something you can get in the um, 
gifts for computer lovers, and it's also they complain about the lens lock system on ah. Elite, which was part of anti-copywriting. Well, stuff. there's a thing that I remember. What bootleg lens copies lock. of uh, lens lock? Okay, it looked mental. <laughs> it was a small, almost square rectangle of plastic, which had. Um, which was in like a, in two dimensions. So you pressed yeah. it against the screen. And it was about maybe a, <laughs> maybe so an fun. inch off the screen. Yeah. So um, and in the middle of it, it had a clear piece of uh, or a kind of opaque piece of plastic with two very thin lines down the middle of them. And if you looked into the lines, at the same time, it, you could make out some letters, and then you typed in the letters. The problem that they had was that a lot of people would get home they'd hold the lens up to the dutifully hold the lens up to the screen you had to do this bear in mind every time you loaded the game yeah and oh that's some massive bullshit i've just thought i did the horror of that has just hit me yeah and some people or a lot of people could not see the letters through it i got there eventually oh my like a magic eye picture yeah but (laughs) but i did it with uh, a service that was offered through my school, which was that there was a lad in our class who'd managed to work out that one of the computer shops in town, they'd have empty boxes yeah. on the shelves. The tapes were always kept behind the um, behind the counter, but there was a shop in town that was with Elite. It was leaving the lens locks in the boxes. And so for 50p or whatever, he'd just go and nick you one. <laughs> The thing is, I was uh, 12 when Elite came out. Yeah. And I I was just too young for it. I didn't really get it. I didn't... I, now I know about Elite. And I know what it achieved. Which was basically using algorithms to create an infinite universe. Yeah. It's incredibly it's an incredibly clever piece of programming. You play that game and you do not think that it comes in at less than forty eight kilobytes of memory. But anyway, having got this lens lock off this kid for fifty P <laughs> um, and with Elite, I played it once for about fifteen minutes and I just thought it was boring. And I thought it was boring because I was twelve, you know. Yeah. But I do recognise it now as the technological achievement that it definitely was. Yep. Your festive highlight. Probably the gift they featured, which was a device to slow games down to make (laughs) them easier. Yeah. What the hell is that? I mean, we're talking about like a little plastic box with a metal... Yeah, I mean, presumably it's resistors or something. Yeah, you just turn it around like a dimmer switch and it just slows the game right down. I have no idea whether it would have, how that would have worked, whether it would have done yeah, damage well, to think... the motherboard or... Yeah, what? to how? everything. Yeah, I, I have no idea. You can't get those now. I, no. And games don't come with that setting built in, necessarily. True. So it's not even a thing that you you think about. It's like if the game's too fast for you, you know, play another game. But now it's like, actually, I'm finally going to manage to complete whatever. I always... (laughs) I'm going to do it at just excruciating pace. Just crawl along. Yeah. 
No, that, what they didn't mention there, does it only slow down or does, can it speed up as I well? I presume that it would be able to speed up as well. I that mean, would be awesome. I know that oh, I don't that know, would appeal no. to you. Well, no, actually, I don't know if it would because obviously mate, pushing it to go faster would be like overclocking it, wouldn't it? Yeah. I know there's a finite level to which the processor can go. Yeah. And they only had those Motorola Z80. Your house will be using so much electricity that the police will be round every week to see if you've got a weed farm. Yeah. Uh, my festive highlight was the fact there was a bit of tinsel around the screen for the beginning bit for just long enough that you started to wonder whether or not it was going to have a bit of tinsel around the screen the whole way through. Yeah, it's a nice touch. It was... <laughs> It wasn't very festive, you know. It wasn't that much different to any other episode of Microlive. Yeah, and it was my only episode of Microlive, so there is, you know, I felt a free son of festive, but that's because I've watched it near Christmas in an advent calendar podcast. Yeah, yeah. In tomorrow's episode... It's the Les Dennis Laughter Show from the 22nd of December, 1990. Which I have to say, I've always considered to be the weirdest day of Christmas. What's going on the 22nd of December? Is it Christmas? Is it Christmas? Is it not? Is it alright to drink port in the bath at 10am? It better be. It better be, because that's what I'm doing. But that's all for another day. We will be back, Dennis in tow, tomorrow. Thanks very much for listening, and goodbye.